We have the call to worship where God has called the world, and we are privileged by His Spirit within us to heed that call. Praise ye the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him for His mighty acts, praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us pray. Indeed, God above, we pray for your spirit to be with us in special measure as we come in your presence, as we come to worship you, Lord, uh, that we would have the conviction and the comfort and whatever else we need, God, by your word and by your spirit, Lord, and may we focus upon you and have our hearts renewed in love of you. We pray these things as you taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We have the reading of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So, as you know, this is quoted in the New Testament Hebrews, where we have, You are my son today, I have begotten you. That is, Jesus Christ is the king here. He is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God says, The nations are your inheritance. Whatever you desire and ask. And of course, Christ is king over all of it. He's desiring all of it, and he is getting all of it. We will either submit to him or be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. And we're reminded here that it's the kings and judges of the earth in particular highlighted in this text. Is only the part about Jesus dying relevant to today or also the fact that the world is called and even nations are called because the Great Commission is given to whom? The nations, to disciple the nations of the world, not just individuals. And to submit to him, be instructed, you judges of the earth, and serve the Lord with fear. And thank the Lord that he's with us so that we can serve him with fear and love this morning. Let us go before him with the prayer of God's people. This morning, God above, we are again thankful for the rain and the sun and uh, the protection you've given us, God, for our bodies and the food, Lord, and all these things in your providence that you've bestowed upon us. And certainly you've bestowed upon uh, the unbeliever these good things, as Jesus reminds us that the rain is upon the just and the unjust, the blessings, God, of things in this world. But there is a special providence, Lord, for your people that is guided and directed towards us to a good end. We're thankful for that, God, in America, with our history, as our forefathers in the 1600s and 1700s confessed God and even Jesus Christ 
And that was even written in some of our constitutions, God, the original state constitutions, Lord. And so that is part of our history, not as though we were uh, a nation that replaced the church, but rather a nation, Lord, more or less, that acknowledged Jesus and acknowledged the gospel and the Christianity. Although they had their sins and problems, Lord, they too were men of, of their times. Nevertheless, God, it was a blessing, a special providence. In giving your church in America such peace and prosperity that we have so much money and ability to send off missions, Lord. England, of course, and America were the center of foreign missions in the 1800s and 1900s, God. And so these are blessings. These are you working things in time and space through your church, God, to bring more blessings upon the church and upon the world and more of the world nations, God. Leaders of the nations heard the gospel because of that. We are thankful for that, Lord, God above. Even as, Lord, uh, we groan and are sad to see how far we have fallen as a nation, uh, individually and collectively, in the sins that we have, God, we pray, Lord, that these things would be acknowledged and that, especially churches, Lord, to the extent that we still struggle with sins, would be humbled by our sins. And we ourselves, individually, God, as we struggle against them throughout the week, would acknowledge our sins, Lord, and fight against them and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ to know that you love us that you have given us the good news of Jesus Christ, that if we repent and believe that, God, you have promised, you will save us and are saving us. You will forgive us as a father forgives his children. Certainly he will discipline them, Lord, but he will never disown them. So may we cling to those even as we fight against the entanglement of this world, the flesh, and the devil. Pray for this nation, God, again with a special providence that was overabundant with blessings that flowed upon this nation, Lord. It was especially directed towards your church. We pray for the repentance of our leaders, the tearing down of wicked laws, locally, God, in our cities, in our counties, in our state, and across this nation as well. We pray, Lord, that our leaders, even though we know the vast majority are not Christians, and even some of those who claim to be Christians, God, we pray and hope that they are and that they would stand firm, would stand up for their fellow citizens against the the mob rights and hatred and whatever else is going on, Lord, not only uh, in the streets, but also in the schools and elsewhere in this nation, God, that would harm those whom we are concerned about, especially those close to us, God, our friends and our family. Pray for the protection of the churches, protection of Christians, God. It hurts our heart to hear a Christian who stood firm in Washington against attacks upon her conscience, and she did not want to sell those flowers to the wrong kind of event. The Supreme Court won't back her up. We have no advocate, it seems, in this nation for Christians anymore. So we pray, God, and plead out to you. The psalmist cries to you, God, nowhere else to go, it seems. And so we pray and ask for your mercies and your power and your might stretched towards us again, your special providence. Protect her, protect her livelihood and her family, God, from hatred and wickedness and others, Lord, who are also being attacked a little here, a little there. Pray, Lord God, above, again, for continued repentance and strong churches, Lord, to hold the line, to stand firm, to call the world to repentance, God, and not make excuses that we're too harsh and people aren't comfortable in our churches. They're not going to be comfortable if they don't believe what we believe, and we're not going to be comfortable in their institutions. It's just how life is. But more importantly, God, it's how the truth is. So God, may the churches, again, whatever they are, Presbyterian or not, Calvinist or not, do the right thing, preach the right truths of your word as relevant to their people and as relevant to their society where they find themselves, God, to warn them of hell and draw them, encourage them to flee to Jesus Christ in the glories of heaven. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray for our church, our little denomination, that we would do the right thing as we have General Assembly this week, God, and that our committees and our temporary committees uh, would make the right decisions, Lord, and uh, be united upon the truth. And although we can have different disagreements about exactly how to spend money, exactly how to spend our resources and our time and abilities, God, and there's certainly disagreement, room for disagreement for that, Lord, that we would not have a cantankerous disagreements with God, but a humble submission to one another. We pray and ask, God, that you continue to preserve us, that we would stand firm as a church. Pray in particular, God, for our home missions effort here in America. 
In particular, Lord, that we would not forget the poor and the middle class, uh, what more and more people are calling what they used to call the deplorables. They too need the gospel. Whether we agree with them on some things or not, God, uh, they are still a large portion of this nation uh, that is should not be forgotten. And certainly whoever comes across our path, Lord, whoever they are, whatever background, whatever socioeconomic distinctions they have, Lord, as a rich person, we need to speak to them as well. Give us boldness and give us clarity. Give us patience, Lord, for we're not all called to be pastors, but we're certainly called to speak the truth when we are asked. And may we do thus, and always trusting in you, Lord, in spite of how much we may feel like we're stumbling. We pray for our families, God above. We ask that you would protect them, watch over them, that they would continue to do what they are called to do out of love and a sense of duty, a proper sense of duty, God, especially in a day and age that doesn't care about duty, makes excuses, and rather wishes to have license and freedom to sin and do wickedly when they are called to their duties first. We are called to our duties and also our love towards one another. And the wives to submit to their husbands, for the husbands to lead and protect their family, for the children to submit to their parents, God above. And that we would take care of our parents and our grandparents, Lord, that we can do what we can to help them in their old age as they helped us when we were young and helpless. So God, be with our children, our grandchildren, Lord, that they would stand firm and again, a society that hates them, that clumps them with the wrong views at times and mislabels them, but doesn't matter. We're identified and uh, they're marking us out more and more with more hatred. We ask that it would not overflow to our children, our children's children, but rather be contained, again, by righteous laws and righteous leaders. Again, we pray, God, for their protection, protection of our friends and all of us, Lord, but especially the protection of our souls. We would stand firm upon your truth, that we read your Bible, we would meditate upon it. We would know that there's increasing ignorance about what the Word of God says and that we would fight against that ignorance, fight against perhaps whatever distractions we have or maybe we are lazy. Whatever the problem is, God, to do what we can to see we have a glorious heritage that's given to us in your Word to give it to our children, our children's children, and to one another, and to those who wish to hear and learn. Ask and pray, God, above, this morning, as we come to worship you, to bow before you, not on our knees, certainly in our hearts, to submit to you and to rejoice in your presence for the good things that you've given us through Christ Jesus. Be with us, we pray, and bless the preaching of your word. Amen. We ask, God, that again, in your special providence, that these tithes and offerings may be continued to be used for those in financial need and other aids that they need from the church of God and for the preaching of the word and the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To your glorious name we pray. Amen. Let us read the Ten Commandments together. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, the jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him till this who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us go to the book of Acts. Acts 15, verse 2. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Let us pray. Spirit of truth and enlightenment, we pray that you would continue to keep us alert to your truths, God, to hear your word this morning, to understand the use and function and even the importance, God, of a general meeting of the Church of Jesus Christ to deal with matters relevant to the entire body. Call a general assembly these days, Lord. You may have other names. So that, God, we would have good things flow from them, that they are there, Lord, and church leaders, to gather and to deal with questions that are dividing the church, that are bringing harm upon the soul of the members. We pray, God, that we would indeed pray for our General Assembly this week and understand more clearly after this sermon what their function is and how important it can be. In your name alone we pray. Amen. I've preached a few times over the last few years about presbyteries, about the governing body of ministers and ruling elders of a regional collection of churches. That was when I went out in the spring presbytery. And we learned that this governance includes issues common to that regional collection of churches. We see that Corinth and Antioch and the like, where there are multiple churches apparently in that region. It wasn't just the church, but the churches or the city, the, those big cities are obviously going to be the big name of the presbyteries there we see in the book of Acts. They gathered together material support for churches in need, examination of pastors, ordination of pastors, the calling of pastors uh, to the missionary field. We see that in Timothy as, a, as well as in Acts. And any other issue that falls under the matter of edification and protection of the regional body of the churches, that's a presbytery. We are in the presbytery of the Dakotas, uh, which includes several states, obviously the Dakotas, Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. And the many churches that we have in there have a common issue that we have uh, agreed to take care of one another as we are able to deal with common issues, such as examining pastors who come into our presbytery who want to become a pastor of a local church. It isn't just the local church that deals with it. It is the meeting of the presbytery. Read that again uh, in Timothy chapter 5, laying on the hands of the presbytery and examination thereof, and how that actually has a Jewish background, that particular word, in fact, and the usage of it, as well as we'll see here, this also has a Jewish background. The gathering together that they have here and the formal gathering of the church into Jerusalem. The word used is, we would say in English, synagoguing, gathering together, Jewish background. So we have it here as well. Now we come to another layer of the church, not just the regional church, but the universal church, or at least as universal as you can get at the time. Ours, of course, all the OPC churches in America, uh, in Haiti and whatever else they may be. I think we have, what, Quebec? Love that church there. And here, it's all the churches they ever had. I mean, this is the very beginning of the New Testament era of the church. They're just now spreading across from Jerusalem to Antioch, which is basically the armpit of Turkey and northern Syria, uh, across to Corinth and the other side of Turkey and the like. Churches planted everywhere, growing everywhere, and they all gathered together for this, what we call a general assembly. Other names could be used. Some say synods. 
I suppose you could call it the presbytery. It's the national presbytery. That's actually been a, a word used historically at times. Whatever the case is, the substance is what matters. Where at the regional church level, the level of the presbytery, we are given very little details other than the laying on of hands and the setting out of missionaries. Here at the largest level, we have the actual meeting of a dispute and a debate here. If you recall the debate, which is, do the Gentiles have to act like Jews now? Those who followed the Messiah, do they have to act like Jews now that the Messiah has come? Before the Messiah came, Gentiles had to act like Jews, didn't they? They had to come join the Jewish church and do Jewish things. Now that Christ has come, he says, it's all done away with. You don't have to be Jewish anymore, although you may have a Jew who's a Christian. You can act Jewish in the sense of part of their traditions, but there shouldn't be any sacrifices, shouldn't be any priesthood, none of that. No satyrs, none of that. Just everything else minus that. You could be whatever goim, ethnos is the New Testament word, bring the gospel to the ethnos, that's the Great Commission. You, you're going to be a Japanese church, you're going to be an American church, you're going to be an African That's all, that, all that's fine. You don't have to be Jewish anymore. That's the debate here. And of course, it's specifically circumcision. They're like, they still have to be circumcised, some of these Jews, that is Christian Jews. They're apparently confused, some of them. They didn't quite fully understand. I mean, imagine hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, America's got 230 years now, right? 2028, whatever it is. David was about 900 AD, so that's 900 years from David to Christ. Almost 1,000 years. Moses, 1,200, 1,250 or so. 1,200 years. Abraham, 18, 1850 B.C. I mean, he's the father of the Jews. Circumcision was given to him. 1,800 years of a history. And all of a sudden, you're like, turn it off. It's like a light switch. What? It's very hard to struggle. And you see that struggle going on in Acts. And God is very gracious with them. We see that in the assembly here where they make a compromised decision, don't they? They tell the Gentiles, don't eat things with blood. I have freedom. They're like, we're not Jews. We don't have to have that restriction. God's like, no. This is a transition period in Acts. And God is a father who understands it takes time. And churches do uh, similar things. Denominations do similar things today. Our session has been kind to people. We know you're you're perhaps new to the Reformed faith, and we we give you some wiggle room. This is exactly what's happening here in Acts. Our lesson is today, what we're going to learn today is what the function is and what's going on with a general assembly. So that's the background. That's what happened here. We know the resolution of the matter, uh, which is essentially a compromise, but in the direction toward no more Jewishness. Eventually, we know the eating of the food was completely done away with by the time the book of Hebrews is written. He's making it very clear. You can't go back to these things. You should not go back to these things of Jewishness anymore, the Jewish worship system in particular, and the ceremonial law of distinctions. Well, that's done away with. So here we have a meeting, the National Meeting of the Jerusalem Council, as, that, as it's called. We call it uh, today a General Assembly. So what was going on in Jerusalem in 49 AD? Well, I already covered this gospel issue, as I pointed out. They were saying, got to be circumcised, and no, you don't have to be circumcised. It's not required any longer. Baptism replaces circumcision, right? In Colossians chapter uh, 2. And the issue here, of course, being disturbing and unsettling to the souls. It's serious enough. Verse 24, we read, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls. So it's not just any issue that comes up, but issues that are serious enough to warrant a gathering of the church more formally, of course, the gathering of the leadership of the church to deal with the matter, to protect the souls of the church. And I would say, hey, you're not a real Christian unless you're circumcised is a pretty serious issue. That's a false claim. It's a pressing matter. 
bring a great dispute. That's what we have here. I started out with verse 2. They had no small dissension. Luke sometimes writes that way, kind of backhandedly, right? It's no small. What he's saying, it's a large dissension and dispute with them. That is, uh, the Jews who are saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, verse 1. And so they determined, we're going to duke this out. Take Paul and Barnabas and certain others, not just any Tom, Dick, and Harry, but certain others, as we know from the rest of the text, church officers gathered together in Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question, troubling their souls. The general assembly that we have follows a similar thing. It's not just any issue that comes up. You deal with that locally. So it's a local approach, right? We like that as conservatives in America. Everything should be local unless you can't handle the local. If you need more resources, more money, you make it larger to the county level from the city. It's a bunch of cities helping each other, essentially. And then the state level, a bunch of counties and cities helping each other at the state level if the issue is wide enough. And same with this. It affected the entirety of the church. The Judaizers came from Judea to Antioch, again, uh, further north. They went across two presbyteries and taught in the Jerusalem Presbytery itself this false truth, that unless they are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they are not saved. And apparently they exported that, that teaching to the Presbytery Antioch. As you go over some of the history here up to chapter 15 where Paul had been, you see that's the background. So it's a church-wide problem that went across two presbyteries, went across two presbyteries. The people involved, the leadership, of course, the presbyters, as you know, that's the Greek word, a virtual transliteration of the Greek word, uh, and it just means an elder, even elderly person sometimes, but often it's used in a sense of an office, because obviously we don't want some greenhorn, we would say, some 18-year-old to be president of America. That'd be scary, dude. And you have the same thing in the church. You want people who have experience. Elderly doesn't mean you have to be 80, it just means you're old enough right? And you're considered uh, an elder that way. And the apostles, to go up to Jerusalem, verse 2, to the apostles and elders about this question at hand. Verse 6, it mentions again, apostles and elders came together. Verse 22, the decision pleased the apostles and the elders. And part of the significance of this is that the decision made at the Jerusalem council, that the Gentiles should give in a little bit and not eat meat with blood, for example, was not an edict from the apostles themselves. They could have done that, right? I mean, these guys can give prophecies. They heal people, and yet they gathered with the humble presbyters, the elders of the church, and coordinated this decision of the church with men who were not inspired and did not do miracles. You catch that? So you can't just say, well, this is not relevant. They have the apostles. No, it's the apostles actually not fully exercising the kind of power and authority you could expect them to do. When they establish churches, they condemn I mean, Peter's like, you got a, ball, a gall of bitterness in your heart, Simon Magus. you got to repent. He and had revelation of the Spirit in the way the ruling elders and the presbyters, the pastors did not, the teaching elders. You see that? So this is significant. We can go here and learn from this and say, hey, to the extent that there's non-amazing things going on, right? No prophecies, no miracles. To that extent, it is relevant for us today. That's the easiest rule of thumb when you go through Acts, because there's a lot of miracles in Acts, but there's also what? a lot of preaching, mundane, boring thing, but as preaching, it's important. And same with this. Their decision was made coordinated with the rest of the church leadership, brothers and sisters. So it was binding that way, not binding because the apostles said so. And of course, it's a group decision. It's not the Pope making the decision for them or a a cardinal or something, it's a group decision. And Presbyterianism always highlighted the fact that it's a group of men who make decisions over the church, not just any one man. And interestingly enough here, we have in the text, we seem to have a leader of the leaders. So that may sound like I'm contradicting what I said earlier, no pope and no cardinals, but he's not leading them in the sense of making a decision for them. If you notice, again, it said in verse 22, it pleased the apostles and elders. It was 
part of their decision as well. It wasn't just James's decision. I'm talking about James here. James seems to be a leader of leaders, and we would call that the moderator today. He's coordinating and guiding the process of the large meeting of the officers. We don't know how many officers there were. There are apparently lots of them. And part of that's just natural law. You just, any gathering of a large group of people, you've got to have some kind of leadership to at least make sure things are going smoothly before you have the vote, for example. Things are done what? Proper decency and good order, 1 Corinthians 14. So all that's coming into play here. You don't need the Word of God to tell you to fill out the details that way. You just use natural revelation, just common activities in the church that are common to all other gatherings of people outside the church. You do the same kind of principles. You're efficient. You're orderly, right? You've got to make sure you've got a place to meet. You've got a time to meet, etc., and a time limit, too. You don't want to meet all day and just have, have problems that way. So these things are going on here, uh, all these moving pieces in this text. Uh, so what we have, of course, verse 7, is Peter spoke after a debate, apparently here. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know, a good while ago, and he gives his story and his testimony, right? Where God told him, because he's so stubborn, through the vision, you can hang out with the Gentiles. It's okay. You can eat the foods you couldn't eat before. So Peter, however, is speaking after there has been much dispute. So the church gathers together and doesn't say, hey, apostles, you have a direct pipeline to God. Tell us what's going on. But rather they dispute. They argue. And that's part of what happens at general assemblies. Now, we do it nicely and properly. They're called Robert's Rules. Stand up and say, moderator, I have, a, I have an issue. I have a point. So he gets your attention and said, okay, you can speak to the issue at hand. You speak to the issue at hand. It's very formal. Uh, in some ways, it can be kind of frustrating because you can't talk directly to a person. You have to talk to the moderator about an issue. You can't say, Mr. Martin over here, he's got issues. No, no, you're not allowed to do that. You don't want to bring personal issues into the matter. So that has an advantage. It also has disadvantages, uh, but it has a good advantage of keeping things orderly and on the spot. Point being, they disputed. It wasn't just a big gathering and all just kind of went, well, well what do you think? I don't know. They, they were wrestling with the issue, brothers and sisters. They're wrestling. How much should we give in? To the pressure of the Jews. Well, we're not going to say you have to be circumcised to be saved. But we are saying, with respect to sanctification, stop eating the meats that offend your weaker brother. We have the other passages, of course, about the weaker brother in Romans and Corinthians. And eventually even that dies away, because after a while, the brothers can't run the church by their weakness. They're just going to have to bite the bullet and accept the fact that Gentiles don't, can eat meat with blood. Although I still don't like state tartare. Medium well, all the way. The church is involved it tells us here, verse 22, it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church. With the whole church. Uh, verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So again, they're electing and choosing people. It's not just anybody who's like, hey, I feel like I want to do it. In other words, it's not what we call pure democracy, right? They are sending delegates and officials. Judas, who was named uh, Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among uh, the brethren. And by church, I take it not every member of the church of Jerusalem and Antioch, or the Presbytery of Jerusalem and Antioch. We had a lot of slaves. You had people who were busy. They're at work. It's the ruling elders, I would argue. The brethren is mentioned a few times in this text, among the brethren. And uh, some commentators believe that's ref- referring to the ruling elders. That is, those who represent the people. Delegate. It's a common activity, again, of the synagogue approach, of the Jewish approach assumed in the New Testament era. You see it by the language they use, as I said again, the gathering together of the church. And so they went off uh, and they're involved. So you have pastors, apostles, and ruling elders at the first general assembly or the Jerusalem council there, 49 
AD. Well, we have some particulars here. That's some uh, general overview or picking out some of the details, showing you what it consisted of, the authority there, the officers. And we have some particulars here. It's a binding authority. What they did here was a binding authority. What they decided to be done, they, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you should do well, fare you well. And so you have a mixture here of some ceremonial and obviously moral admonitions, fornication, for example, is clearly. So apparently there was a problem with fornication, and I would guess it would be the Gentile problem, although not exclusively, as we know. In other words, reminding the Gentiles, sure, you're going to give in to your Jewish brothers for a while with respect to food, but let's remind you, you have a problem here, fight against it. Obviously, this list is not exhaustive. This is it. It's all you got to follow now. You can do anything else you want in life. There's no Ten Commandments. Clearly not the case. I don't think any Christian actually believes that. So again, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, we, we come to the text understanding what is dealing with a very narrow question of brothers struggling with this matter. And so they give a compromise with some further admonition. So there's no more circumcision to keep the law and to be saved. That's certainly done away with. But rather, there is something binding here. It's a moral authority. If someone disobeyed this junction, they would be disciplined. This isn't pious advice or a suggestion. The Church of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council said, this is what you are supposed to do. Abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood, from strangle, from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare ye well. And they sent it to the entirety of the church. Not just binding upon Paul and his opponents, but upon Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, which are actually named in the text, all the presbyteries and all the churches involved. It was a universal decision, not just a regional decision. So this tells us the American approach, I say American in the sense that the vast majority of conservative Christians are Baptists in government. I mean that in the narrow sense of the word government, independent government. The local church has the final say. They may have a plurality of elders. They may not have a plurality of elders. And if they have a plurality of elders, often, but not always, the one elder, the teaching elder, the pastor is the one who calls the shots. I don't see that in the Word of God. I can see why you get that in the Word of God. If you're not going to the text carefully, like I've tried to uh, here in Acts 15 or elsewhere about the presbytery, the power of the presbytery, and the gathering of the presbyters to lay on hands, it's an American invention in many ways, although not uniquely American. You have independence in Europe before America came along. But here we see a binding authority across the entirety of the church. That doesn't fit the independent model. It just simply does not fit the independent model. When you hear about the Southern Baptist Convention, right, wrong, or indifferent, They talk, of course, in the media as though it's a denomination. It is not a denomination the way we think of it as a Presbyterian church. Because what they have at the largest level is not binding on any particular church. It just simply isn't because they're Baptist by definition. Just so you know, this is the context in which we find ourselves. I don't see that here. It's simply not here. They send out delegates to write to the various churches telling them, this is what's going on to the brethren who are Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. That's not Jerusalem. That's other churches elsewhere. It's binding across all the churches. That is what a general assembly is, brothers and sisters, dealing with serious matters across the entirety of the church. Ideally, we want, we want one church, obviously. It would be great if we just had what we had in Acts, but we don't. And so the way unity is now shown is by denominations. We don't like it, but it's where we are because of sin. We're in a fallen world. So we do the best we can. We want some kind of unity, and so we have a general assembly. We have a gathering of all the churches to have a common agreement of doctrine and belief called the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And there are other places like that, other denominations, the PCA, the CRC, the URC, all this alphabet soup stuff. The Anglican Church, same thing. 
They believe in unity, although we disagree with them. They think it's more top-down authority. We think it's more middle-up, bottom-up authority. Nevertheless, there is something here. There's real authority here. And the reason why I highlighted the ruling elders and the presbyters is why. Because the authority came from them, not just because they're apostles. You can see the rebuttal, right? Well, they got apostles, so it's not really binding today. Dude, the apostles were co- I mean, coordinating. They weren't making decisions. There was actually a dispute. Do you argue with an apostle? You do if the guy's not bringing divine revelation. Because they're no better than anyone else that way. As Paul said, you're more noble if you study the Word of God. Compare what I say with the Word of God. So that's what you have. That's why you read the text carefully and you see this and you go, wow, like I did. Okay, there's really something here. There's really such a thing as a general council, a large council that has some kind of binding authority upon the members of the entirety of the church, or in our case, a denomination. So we have the General Assembly this week. What's going on? The second point, July 7th through the 14th, your pastor will be at the General Assembly. No apostles, but other brethren or ruling elders and pastors. It's a delegate assembly, and I'll go through this here. The governing body of the entire church is a general assembly. The governing body of the entire denomination, we also call it the church because we think of the church not just individual, but regional church and a national church. It's a church. It's it's a real uh, called out. The Old Testament word is the called out ones. New Testament is those who are assembled, separated from the world. The entirety of the church. When the issues they're dealing with, of course, are issues related to the entirety of the denomination, and we are limited by the Word of God. We cannot bind you with things beyond the authority given to us by the Word of God. What we say is both the local church leadership, the regional church, the presbytery, and the national church, the General Assembly, has ministerial authority in the name of Christ through the Word of God, not magisterial authority. Like the magistrate, he can tell you not to drive 55 down this road. We cannot do that. We can only tell you what's in the Word of God and natural revelation. That's assumed there. You're a woman. You're a man. That's it. It's important because there are, again, churches and traditions, whether Anglican, top-down, independent, Baptist, even some old Presbyterian churches, the, the liberal ones, who will bind your conscience against the Word of God. We do not want to do that. Of course, if things are that serious of a break, uh, then we will be kind to you and say, well, you maybe want to find another denomination. We're not saying you're not a Christian. It's just we have a disagreement here, right? So the General Assembly here has a purpose. It functions mostly like a presbytery, but just a larger body, right? They can organize and dissolve presbyteries. They can discipline. They are the final court of appeal. We see that here very much so with this question. Uh, so in Matthew, if we see if there's a, a serious enough sin, you're supposed to go talk, tell it to your brother in Matthew 18. And if he doesn't listen, you bring others with you. If they don't listen to you, you tell it to the church. And we don't take that to mean and get on Zoom and grab all six, you know, 1.2 billion Christians across the world and tell them. No, you tell the leadership who represent the church. You see that common in the Old Testament where the church is sometimes uh, a shorthand for the rulers who represent the church. And it's the church, by the way, singular in Matthew 18. Light of nature, of course, any common issue or concern within the church. Um, we have four great standing committees of our General Assembly. That is, a committee is a gathering of men that we think could be helpful to the church on particular issues. It's hard to deal with questions of foreign mission, for example, with a committee of 150. And so we get, I don't know how many is in the, in the foreign mission committee, uh, 15 or 10 people, right? So we gather a smaller group. They deal with some matters. They report to us. They're given some authority to get some things done because we don't meet all the time as a General Assembly. What happens between the meetings? So something comes up so the, the, the committee can deal with it often. Or if it's serious enough, you can actually have a special meeting. We do that with presbyteries often, uh, more often than the General Assembly. is a special meeting that we weren't scheduled, and we try to deal with the matter at hand. 
So committees have some authority that way to get things done, but they're always accountable to the General Assembly, like me, who reads the minutes and sees if there's anything suspicious going on in the minutes, and of course that they're done in good, proper form. Both things are actually supposed to be done. So, uh, let's see, foreign missions, home missions, Christian education, and the diaconate. Diaconal concerns, that is, uh, concerns of the body. What can we do to help people who are out of work, who are sick, especially pastors uh, who are unemployed, or perhaps, or something like that, or sick, and the like. Uh, so those are some of the big standing committees that we have to deal with common issues. I mean, it's a common issue to do home missions. That is, start a new church in America. That's our home base. That's what we mean by home missions. And it often takes a lot of resources, more than perhaps one presbytery can pull off. So if multiple presbyteries want to pull off, we do that usually in the form of General Assembly. <laughs> but not exclusively. Some presbyteries start home missions. They're big enough. They have enough uh, power to do it, so they do it. So we have not only General Assembly helping with establishing churches, but also the presbyteries. Usually they coordinate with the presbyteries because they're going to be in their backyard doing it. So we have home missions and foreign missions, of course, where you have a lot more authority in the General Assembly. But again, presbyteries are all, can also be involved in foreign missions as well. So... That's what we have in the General Assembly, and the leadership is obvious, of course, pastors and ruling elders. And if we happen to have any apostles, sure, them too, but we don't. People tell me, you know, I, I'm an apostle, I do miracles. Okay, I'm waiting. As soon as a person comes to me and says, I'm an apostle, I want to run your church, let me see a miracle, give me some evidence, because miracles give evidence to the apostleship. That's part of what they do. They're not just there to do wonderful things. They're evidences of their authority. It's not going to happen. It's one reason why I gave up charismatic, charismania. And deacons are involved sometimes, like on the diaconate committee. Their speciality, if they're helpful, will do that. Uh, and we also have a leader of leaders, like James, we call the moderator. Now, his is an annual authority, and he has some things he's allowed to do, of course, because some things are better done by one person instead of a committee of 150 or something uh, like that. But it's usually there uh, to make sure the assembly is done in good order and not chaotically, and that things run smoothly during the debates and discussions and bringing up of reports, for example. And he wants to coordinate the schedule, make sure things, and fills in the gaps so there's no downtime and, and, the, and the like. And he has some authority, again, between meetings, him and the clerk, uh, to deal with some matters that need to be dealt with in emergency fashion. And, of course, the church is involved. And so far as you vote for your ruling elders and pastors, the Presbyterian, the General Assembly, they don't tell you who you're going to have rule over you. You decide. But you don't decide in the vacuum. You decide after we examine, as a Presbytery, the pastor in question. And the ruling elders are not examined by the Presbytery. They are examined by the local church. So you have a lot more say with respect to the ruling elder. And, of course, you can give your opinion to your ruling elder if he's going, or me, I'm your, I'm your pastor, I've been chosen. We have a delegated assembly, that is, every presbytery, depending on the number of churches they have, sends so many ministers and so many ruling elders. I don't know what formula is. Trip probably does. Um, and I got chosen. We voted as presbytery who we want to send to represent our presbytery. I got chosen, all other ministers, and I think we have two ruling elders and three or four ministers uh, that are going. The PCA, for example, is different. Every ruling elder and every pastor can go. And so they have, like this year, about 2,000 people at the General Assembly. It's crazy. Um, it's, I don't necessarily think it's wrong, per se. I don't think it's very functional that way. But there's nothing in the Bible that gives you that specificity. We determine by the light of nature that delegated assemblies are more useful, and I still think they are, more or less. If we were smaller, perhaps you would have a, a mob approach that way. So I've gone over the particulars of our GA, how we're a little different uh, than the PCA, and the URC is also a little different than we are uh, in some of these matters. But we all agree there is such a thing as a general assembly that has some kind of authority that has church officers there. That's the broad overview. Here it is, brothers and sisters, and we see this. And it's useful for us. 
The frequency, again, is dependent upon the light of nature and the circumstances. Uh, the committees, again, are a division of labor, frankly. You don't want to put some greenhorn on some of these committees. You want someone who's got experience, for example. And the fruit of a godly general assembly, lastly here, the fruit of a godly assembly. Settles debate for the truth, the gospel protected, the laws enforced. Questions of conscience are dealt with. That's what we see here. These people really believe they've got to be circumcised. Christ surely had not eradicated everything. Remember, the book of Hebrews hadn't been written yet. We, we forget. We go to Acts. We think, don't they? What's their problem? We've got the entirety of the New Testament here. They didn't have it written down yet. And some of the stuff Paul wrote hadn't been spread around yet. It's very localized. That came later. The consciences are guided, and I think we're going to find that more and more something that we need to do as a church in the OPC and other Reformed churches because we have a lot more issues we're dealing with affecting Christians more directly than they, they did in the 80s and 90s. And we're going to have questions like that, and we need to deal with them, I believe. The church is here to help both the Presbytery and the General Assembly and maintain unity as well. We read in verse 31, When the churches, right, Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, and elsewhere, when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. It helped bring rejoicing because it brought unity and resolution. Nobody likes tension. Yes, I know you think some of the guys like to be troublemakers. We don't like to be troublemakers. Uh, sometimes it's just pressed upon us, and we have to deal with it. We'd rather have unity and agreement. And that's part of what a General Assembly is supposed to help with. So pray, brothers and sisters, for the General Assembly of the OPC uh, this week. Pray that they would do the right thing. Pray that they would have wisdom and insight to know the times and seasons in which we find ourselves in and adjust accordingly and react in the proper way. That they would settle debates in a godly manner, guide consciences with the Word of God and without compromise, and foster unity among the saints. Let us pray. We thank you, God above, for giving us your spirit, for opening our eyes, Lord, to Acts 15 and to understanding its usefulness, Lord, and that the apostles didn't come to run the show, but coordinated with fallible men, Lord, fallible men who debated and disputed, and they finally resolved the matter, God, to the good of the church. We pray the same thing would be done this week. In your name alone we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.